doing that for you. And I know this is an age-old illustration. How many of you have ever walked into a room in the dark and found out that your trajectory was not without obstacles and you hurt your shin or your toe or you did something and it just, yeah. Those are those times when uh, turning a light switch on helps. Right? Turning on a light switch helps. I'm going to stop right there for a second. When you're going about your day, I'm going to try to come back to that. When you're going about your day, how many of you see people, probably anywhere between hundreds to thousands of people you've never met and likely never will meet? Right? We all do. just depends on where we're at, what we're doing, etc., etc. You've never met them. You're likely to never meet them. And you have, other than them intersecting your life for just a moment, uh, you have absolutely no investment in them, nor do they in you. The only reality, as far as they're concerned, uh, in terms of your life, is that they only changed your life in that they were present in the same oxygen that you were for just mere moments, and then they weren't, and that's all. There's nothing else there. How many of you, uh, assuming that these people that you come in contact with on a daily basis uh, are not uh, exceptionally outstanding in their appearance in one way, shape, or form, like someone walking by you in a chicken suit or something, they're not memorable and you don't think about them again? Right? Now, we are a people who are singing that we're lovers of his presence. Bear with me. We're lovers of his presence. How many of you would say those countless people that you enter, that you cross their paths and never meet, never will meet, have no memory of them, etc., etc., other than the fact that you are out in public? Uh, how many of them do you, can you honestly say, I love those people? Literally. I mean, honestly. Let's be honest. Okay. In reality, we don't say that. We don't know them. We don't have anything to do with them. We, for all intents and purposes, other than we were in a mass of people uh, up at uh, Town East Mall or something, we, we have no investment in them. And, and on a purely human level, we do not love them. But we're talking about a God who we say we're a lover of your presence. In other words, those people, they're just zigzagging around us. They're taking up the same oxygen. But Christ, we have nothing to do with them. But He, His presence is something that we love. We don't love someone we don't have an investment in. We don't love someone we don't know. We don't love someone we don't have a relationship with. And I'm, and I'm, I'm thinking to myself... Um, we, we don't listen to people's advice who we pass in the mall or on the street or at some place. Of, we, we don't listen to their advice, but yet the word of the Lord uh, in Psalm 119.105 says, Your word is a light unto my feet and a lamp unto my path. And if we love his presence, then we, we know something about him. Okay, If we know something about him, it's because he's shared something with us. Um, something that he divulged to us, not something we've contrived about him. It's something that he has given to us, something factual about himself he's told us. And um, although we, we interact with countless numbers of people that we have no investment in, we have no uh, genuine love for, uh, we know they are utterly, perfectly forgettable. 
we say we're the lover of the presence of Almighty God. And we say that because we have something with Him. There's something that we have with Him. Something that He has given to us. Amen? Psalm 119, 105. Your lamp, or your, your, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Back to our darkness illustration. Um, I want you to imagine what it would be like then if we did not have that relationship with Him and we're walking into a room and we find that our pathway has obstacles in it. Obstacles that hurt, obstacles that do damage, things like bruises and broken toenails and maybe broken toes, maybe falls. Okay. Um, your word is a light unto my feet and a lamp unto my path. Lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. I'll get it right here. I'm thinking a little dyslexically right now. Imagine now that room. That room, that dark room. But that dark room could be anywhere, anytime, and it's not dark at all except for in the spirit. Okay? It's not dark at all. That room isn't you coming in at night because you were out late doing something and uh, the power's out, the light bulb's out. You just didn't reach over and grab the switch because you thought you could navigate in the dark. And an injury occurs. You hurt yourself, whether slightly or, or, or severely. And now imagine that. Take that out of your living room. Take that out of whatever room you're entering that you know, that you think you can navigate. And put that room now into the context of people who have no idea they're entering a room that's in the dark and they do not know how to navigate it. Imagine that. They cannot navigate the room because they don't know that they're in the room. Because they can't see the room. There's no discernment of the room. That's the spirit. Okay? Now imagine that. How they're entering a room without the, the one relationship that is the only relationship that matters enough to illuminate the room. It's the only relationship capable of it. Imagine that. And then imagine not having that relationship and plowing into the darkness of this life without the lamp from the one that loves you. Imagine that. How many of you have been there? Corinthians tells us, and such were some of you. That's what it says. And who here among us, knowing the Lord Jesus Christ uh, as we do, who here can deny the fact that we were there? Who can deny that? We can't deny that. All of us were in that room in the dark without the relationship that sheds light to the path. All of us were there. We, I don't care if you've been saved since you were old enough to be saved. I don't, I don't care. I don't care about how your church history or your church tradition. I don't care. We all were born into this life in darkness and we needed the relationship, that thing that they inve- he invested in us that created a lamp to your feet. If you can see your feet, you don't stub your toes. If you can see your feet and what's around it, you don't trip over things. If you don't trip over things, you don't fall. If you don't fall, you don't get injured. And if you're in the Spirit and you don't see the feet or the path, you find yourself walking and attempting to navigate in the dark. And the interesting thing about it is that as you attempt to navigate in the dark without light... You don't even know that what you're running into and injuring yourself with is damning. That's just life to your mind. That's all it is. It's just life. It is what is normal. It is what is expected. It is what... It's how everybody lives. And you don't realize that those obstacles in your way are even damaging. You don't even recognize them as obstacles. 
that's your that's the room in the dark in the spirit god uses his word to illuminate our otherwise dark paths and what's funny in the most unfunny way i can possibly imagine is that it is as though And I don't know what the cause of this is. I can speculate, but we don't have time or even interest in this. Um, Is that we only, the only fasting that the church of Jesus Christ seems to do in the kingdom world today is we fast the lamp and the light. Oh, we're spiritual. We're fasting. It's just the wrong thing. Daniel. Jay, can you bring Daniel chapter 9 up for me? Daniel chapter 9. I've I've always found this text fascinating. And this is what he says. We're going to read both verses 1 and 2. Did I give you both of those, Jay? Okay. Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonians, Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, listen, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Now, that statement that Daniel just made is corroborated elsewhere in the Scriptures. But did everybody catch what happened to Daniel? Okay? What happened to Daniel is that he learned, keeping in mind he's in captivity. Okay? Does everybody hear that? He's in captivity. Uh, He learned one way about the captivity of his people. And how was that done? I understood from the Scriptures. A truth that was otherwise not known to him. He was in the dark. He was in the dark. And how he was brought into the light about a given truth was through what? The Scriptures, according to the Word of the Lord. Given to the prophet Jeremiah. It's vitally important that we recognize that that truth right there, that he's talking about the 70 years, that that was... Talked about, just check out Jeremiah 25 and Jeremiah 29. Okay? Just check that out. But it's vitally important that we recognize something. If we are a people in the 21st century, technologically advanced, extremely sophisticated, etc., etc., if we want to be all that God wants us to be, we have to have the light. Of God's Word. We have to have the light of God's Word in our lives. Because it's when, now listen to me, it's when the light is either extracted slash removed, or as it grows dim in the presence of His people, that His people cease to conduct themselves the way that He would transform us into who's following me. The Bible says He wants to transform us into the image of the Son of God. The less light that is being shown, the less light that's illuminating, the less we conduct ourselves as He would. Because remember, 
He's trying to make us like Him. And here's the deal. I use the word trying, which really sounds absurd, but the reality is, is if He has His way and we do our part, He is transforming us into His image. It's not a try. It's a process that goes on if we're willing to do the thing that He's asked us to do. So, as the... As the darkness encroaches, the light is dimmed. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? A city on a hill cannot be hid. You don't light a lamp and put it under a bushel. That's what he said. The more that process of the dimming happens, the less the children of God act like the children of God. Right? Okay. It doesn't take a lot to realize that that is truth. All you have to do is look at what's in the Word of God. And you find out very quickly that God's people can become God's people in name, but not word and deed very quickly. Very quickly. And as we fast the Word, the less we look like Him, the more we find ourselves in the dark doing things that we accept as acceptable behavior. When in reality, it's just the darkness. Obstacles are not obstacles. It's normal. Jay, we're going to go straight to uh, 2 Chronicles 34. I want to talk to you about the book. Can we do that? I want to talk to you about the book. 2 Chronicles chapter 34. I do not have a text, but I'm going to make one because we're basically preaching out of the entire chapter of 2 Chronicles 34. Okay? And yeah... It's large. I want you to listen to this, the first two verses of chapter 34, 2 Chronicles. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David not turning aside to the right or to the left. Two weeks ago, I preached out of Zephaniah, and we we mentioned Josiah. Two weeks ago, we mentioned Josiah. And and the Lord is drawing me here for a reason. Zephaniah, Josiah. uh, uh, This very story, chapters 34 and 35 of 2 Chronicles, can also be read in 2 Kings 22 and 23. Uh, The Chronicles version is a little more expansive, but they're the same story, all right? I want you to look at this young man. I want you to pay attention to this young man. Um, When he becomes king, he's not even a young man. He is a boy. Some Some in this room would call a baby. Eight years old. Eight years old. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was eight, I was still afraid of the dark. Eight-year-old king. Eight-year-old king. Queen mother at his side. He ruled for a total of 31 years in uh, Judah, Jerusalem. He was 39 years old when he stopped being king of Judah. 39 years old. I'm going to read a couple of verses, or actually I think it's just one verse, um, and I want to show you something. Verse 3, Jay. In the eighth year of his reign, okay, he came in at eight. In the eighth year of him being king, he was 16 years old. While he was still young, 
he began to seek the God of his father, David. In his 12th year, he was now 20 years old. He began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of high places, Asherah poles, carved idols, and cast images. You know what's funny about this guy, Josiah, is that everything he did was out of youth. Everything he did. He even, di- he even died young. That he, he wasn't replaced on the throne. He was killed in battle by uh, uh, Pharaoh Necho out of Egypt, who wasn't even intending to go to battle with him. But he died at 39. Everything this guy did was out of his youth. And in Second Kings, which verse is it? Second Kings, Jay, you don't have this. 23, the Bible says this about Josiah. Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord. As he did. With all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength in accordance with the law of Moses. That's Josiah. Nobody like him in Judah before or after. Nobody. Everything he did was out of his youth. Now look at how this starts out. In verse 2 of 2 Chronicles 34, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, beginning at eight years old, which means he was doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord before he ever took the throne. He was being raised right and doing what was right as a good Hebrew boy. He was doing what was right, what was prescribed by God, and... He walked in the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. Now, we know David made some mistakes. Welcome to the human race. But David loved his God. When he did something wrong, God busted him. What did he do? He confessed. And this is, this is the thing. I understand that this is a rainy, sleepy day. And I get the fact that we're tired and so on and so forth, but I really need you to hang with me today. This was Josiah as a boy right on up till he was just on the cusp of 40 years old. That was his life. That's what he was doing. Verse 3, we've already read it. In the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father David. So at 16 years old, he begins to seek God. Something has initiated a, a, a move towards seeking God and not just being a good Hebrew boy. There's something more. And maybe it was the fact that his spirit was upright that caused that rumbling, that caused that discomfort, that saw as he looked around himself, something is wrong. This is not adding up in Jerusalem and in Judah. Something is wrong here. And I have served the Lord as a boy up until this moment. And at 16, he takes the next four Years, according to this scripture, and he begins seeking God about whatever it was that was in his spirit, in his heart. He begins to seek God, not just fulfill his religious obligations. Four years passed, and as a 20 year old man, 20. In January, that's my son's age. In January. In his twelfth year, twenty years old, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of high places. That's where they would worship, offer sacrifices. Asherah poles, and if you don't know what an Asherah pole is, I'm not going to explain it because it's extremely inappropriate to talk about here. 
carved idols and cast, cast images. I'm just going to read. Under his direction, the altars of the Baals were torn down. He cut to pieces the incense altars that were above them. He smashed the astropoles, the idols and the images. These he broke to pieces and scattered over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He burned the bones of the priests on their altars. And so he purged Judah and Jerusalem in the towns of Manasseh, Ephraim, Simeon, and Naphtali. And in the ruins around them, he tore down the altars and the Asherah poles and crushed the idols to powder and cut to pieces all the incense altars throughout Israel. Then he went back to Jerusalem. At 20. At 20. At 20, he took a position that said, I have served the Lord since I was a child, and now I'm not a child, and now I'm going to do something about what's around me, and I'm going to take care of this. You say, yeah, but he was king. He could wait. Whoa, 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 whoa. No, it has nothing to do with that. You see, it's interesting about this particular situation because do you know how many kings were in Judah by the time Judah fell. Is Jerusalem or Israel's already fallen. They're out of the equation. They're no longer an issue. They're not a, a Hebrew nation anymore. They've been overrun. Judah is still in existence. And do you know how many kings were in their history since the division of the kingdoms, the northern and southern kingdoms? When those of you who may not be as as studied as when you hear them talking about Judah and Israel in the Old Testament, it's because right after Solomon the kingdom split. You had the northern and the southern kingdoms, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. He's the king of Judah, Josiah is. And from the time that occurred, where the split occurred, there were 20 kings. And one of them wasn't even a king. She was a queen. She was a sick, in the words of my, my, bro, uh, my uh, son over here, she was one sick heifer. <clears throat> she was one sick, twisted heifer. She was so twisted, she killed her own uh, family, her own kids, her own grandkids, in order to make sure she was she had the throne uh, access to the throne. She was one sick heifer. Twenty kings. Do you know how many of them were like Josiah out of the twenty? Now think about all the years that we're talking about. There were exactly five kings that were similar to Josiah out of twenty. Four other kings were schizophrenic in that they were totally and completely incapable of, of not vacillating in their dedication to God. And then you have 11 who were sick heifers. So imagine with, with me a government in a nation where it is utterly corrupt... Religion is utterly perverse. The conduct in the, of the people is utterly twisted and decadent. But throughout that entire history, you only have five rulers that sought God genuinely. That's before David and Solomon. That's not counting that time. What kind of an environment would you find if you only had over all those years just five rulers? That, were, that sought God at all. Well, what you'd have is America. Thank you, Bishop. What you'd have is America. But at this time, it was Judah. And at eight years old, he takes the throne. He was raised up as a good little boy. And for eight years, he was on the throne doing throne-like things. His mom there at his side, bringing him along, helping him out, the queen mother. And then at 16 years old, something clicks in him and he begins to seek God. And for four years, he seeks the face of God. At the end of which, he goes on a wholesale tear to cleanse Israel based on what he knows of his upbringing and the move of God in his heart. There's no word of a prophet. There's no word of some kind of revival or anything. There's no, no. This is a young man who finds himself being drawn by God because something's wrong. And what's wrong is that only five kings out of 20 
sought God. The rest of them, had four of them had their moments, but the rest of them were worthless. And he finds himself in a position, being raised up, and knowing God. And he begins to seek God. And God says something. He makes a decision. It's time to clean things up. And he goes about. And he cleans up Judah. You want to know what's funny about this whole story? So far, there's not a single mention of God's Word. There's not a single mention of Josiah being moved upon by God's Word. You know why? Well, let me just let me just give this to you. I'm not going to read it because there's a lot here. He goes back to Israel after or Jerusalem after a and here verse 8 of 2nd Chronicles 34 verse 8 In the 18th year of Josiah's reign, he's now 26. To purify the land and the temple, he sent Shaphan, son of Azaliah, and Messiah the ruler of the city, with Joah, son of Jehoaz, and the, rec- the recorder, to repair the temple of the Lord his God. In other words, they were going DIY on the temple. Okay? It's time to remodel and refurbish the temple. So they do that. They go off to do this. Now, verses 9 through 13, all about money and who gets paid and who took care of the money and all, and all that stuff. Then we jump down to verse 14, and this is important. Remember what Josiah has done. While they, verse 14, 2 Chronicles 34, while they were bringing out the money that had been taken into the temple of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord that had been given through Moses. How many Christians have been in the position where they went, oh, during spring cleaning, look, it's my old Bible. Because it wasn't where it was supposed to be. It wasn't in circulation. It had been lost. Verse 15, Hilkiah said to Shaphan the secretary, um, I found the book of the law of the, of the Lord in the temple of the Lord. And he gave it to Shaphan. The next few verses, basically, Shaphan takes the book back to the king, gives a report on the finances, and then says, um, King, by the way, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. What's so funny about that statement is that this poor man, who's a high-ranking official, doesn't even know what the book is, according to that verse. Doesn't even know what the book is. Um, the priest, yeah, uh, he, he gave me a book. Well, then it says, and she found read from it in the presence of the king. Now, I need you to watch what happens in the next verse. Verse 19. When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his robes. Verse 20, he gave these orders to these men. Jump down to verse 21. Go inquire of the Lord for me and for the remnant of Israel and Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written in this book. (laughs) Do we see the progression that's happened here? A little boy is made king, and for eight years he does king stuff. And then for four years he seeks God. Because something's wrong. Because of the absence of the light of God. The Word of God governing the people of God. And something's wrong. And he doesn't know that that's missing. He only has this fundamental, basic, 
God function inside of him. And he says, this stuff is wrong. Let's get rid of it. He goes about tearing it up, removing all of it. And then they just happen to find the Word of God. And his first response, listen, Josiah's first response is this. Oh boy, are we in trouble. He's done all this cool, godly stuff. Do you hear what I'm saying? He's done all this cool, godly stuff. And upon having the word read to him one time, he knows they're in trouble. Because up until this point, no one's been doing anything that God wants. And he knows because of what it says in God's word. You do these things, destruction is coming on you. And all of a sudden, Josiah, this awakened personality, sought God for four years, went on a crusade for one. Now, six years later, realizes that God is not a happy camper. And the first thing he does is tear his robes, he calls out to five of his leaders and say, go get the prophetess. You go talk to her, have her uh, validate the fact that this is God's word and tell me what's going to happen. Who do they go to but this woman? A woman that none of you have probably ever heard of. Or you've heard of her only in passing because you blew through Second Kings and Second Chronicles. And her name is Huldah. Hulda, essentially, biblically, other than this mention of her, is a nobody. But, oh, she is not a nobody. Because, keeping in mind who Josiah is surrounded with, Zephaniah is a contemporary. The prophet Zephaniah is a contemporary of Josiah's. So is the prophet Jeremiah. He had this kind of muscle available to him. And he calls this woman whose husband is in charge of the wardrobe of the king. He takes and casts aside a major and a minor prophet to talk to this woman because she's so credible and so powerful in God. And she says, yeah... Things are looking really bad for you all. And there ain't no turning back. It's going to happen. This is going to happen. All the curses, all the devastation, all it's all going to happen. Sorry about your luck. It's been nice. See ya. And then she just puts, oh, and by the way, he says, you're going to go to your father's before any of this happens. Bye. So Josiah is going to miss it. So Josiah picks it up, runs off, finishes cleaning up the country, but he does something else. He acknowledges God the way God said to acknowledge him. How many of you just caught what I just said? Guys, it's perfectly nice to do upward, upstanding, moral, religious things. It's okay when you put away cussing and drinking and all that other stuff. Running around, it's, it's great to do all that stuff. But until you acknowledge God the way He calls for it to be done, you're not doing much of anything in reality. Perfectly moral people go to hell because they don't acknowledge God for who He is. Every day of the week. And it's all because of the Word of God. It's all because the Word of God. See, it's perfectly fine. See, I used to be this. I'm just going to tell you. And I'm not crunching on anybody. I'm just telling you about me. Okay? Man, I have no axe to grind against any other denomination. I want that on the record. But I used to be Catholic. Everybody pretty much here knows that. And as Catholics, you do all kinds of really religious things. You do all kinds of things that acknowledge God. 
Sunday in, Sunday out. One mass after another. You acknowledge God. You don't eat certain things on certain days. You do eat other things. You go through these practices, that practice, the other practice. You do all this stuff, and it's all very religious, and all that's perfectly fine. But until you find out what God says His expectations of you are, you haven't done much of anything. And the reality is that without God's Word, Psalm 119, 105, Jay, without His Word... We have no lamp, and we have no light. And all we're doing is what Josiah did through age 26. All we're doing is what I've done when I was raised Catholic. We're not doing anything but religious observance, and we're not finding out what God wants for us and what God's expectations of His children are for Him. We're not finding that out until the lamp and the light shows into our spirits and our paths and our lives what He decides for us. There is nothing else. We've got to acknowledge, you know what, we've been fasting the wrong thing. We've been fasting the wrong thing. How many of you read His Word not out of obligation because you're a Christian, but you read it? Wow, I don't even know how to verbalize this, Bishop. I do not know how to put this into words. It's a combination it's a combination of the fact that you know you're in the dark without it. You read it because you're desperate for light. You're like a plant that needs light. You're like a, something growing that has to have light on it. And you, you, you don't want to be in the dark, but at the same time, it's a thing where you're in love with Him, and that's the way you get to know your lover. How many of us read God's Word that way? And I know, forgive me for being so bold, but the reality is, is that we're operating in a spiritual capacity. And I, despite the fact that I want to say I'm sorry, I'm not sorry. I know that some of you don't read His Word at all. And your lives show it. Someone is seeing your life that has no light and you walk in the dark. There are people who see you. And that's not even getting to, getting to the point where we're talking about what untapped resources have our 8, 16, and 20-year-olds not tapped into yet? Can I get an amen? What? I'm telling you right now that whether you like it or whether you don't, whether you know it or whether you don't, you are on a journey and God has you buckled into His transport. And you're going where He decides. You know why? Because you may not like it or you may not even know it, but God's making you into something you're not right now. And when this is all over, you are not going to be the person you are. That's, the way, that's, that's where you're at. That's where you're at. And I don't know what muzzle or what leash we have to untie, Paul. I don't know what it is. But when our teenagers are scared to death to be what they are in the presence of the main sanctuary, something's wrong. I guarantee you, 
I guarantee you that if the right, whatever it is, was unleashed in their lives to get them to feel like it was acceptable to be who they are here, I'm sorry, y'all wouldn't be the same again. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It w- Mike, this wouldn't be the same place. Because pastor, they don't want to be preached to anymore. They just want to be let off the leash. Hello. Hello. What about you? Are you leashed? Are you leashed? Good. How about the rest? Are you leashed? Josiah had America on his hands when he took the throne. Here's the question. You know that now. You have America on your hands. What are you, the children of God, with the light of God, going to do about it? What part of America do you touch That you can tear down the Asherah poles. That you can destroy the graven images. What? How about starting with our own lives? Because judgment starts in the house of God. How about starting there with some conviction? The very thing. And look, Mary, we don't need to ask. We know what idols are in our lives. We know what it is. Or what they are. Why don't we start there? Get a little practice in. And then start affecting what's around us. What about it? And you know what? It's never going to happen. Until we look at that old Scripture... That old song sung by Amy Grant. Da, 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 da. Everybody knows it. And start thinking, you know what? That's not such a cliche. After all. Yes? Yes? Amen. Stand with me. Mm. Do we have someone to pray over prayer requests this morning? Do you have them? Gary, let's do this. We have a pair of them already down here that were turned in from the outreach at the IWF park. We already have a couple there. You know, there's a story about Abraham Lincoln. He and his uh, security detail were out on a Sunday morning and the, there was this small church that the detail had already made arrangements for with the pastor to allow uh, the president to slip in and attend service. And there was this little side door into a side room that the president slipped into the church so the congregation wouldn't know that he was there. And he sat down with the secret service and which wasn't the secret service at that time, but we understand what that means. And they sat there and they listened to the preacher preach and so on and so forth. At the time of the conclusion of the service, the president slipped out the side door and they went on their way. And as they were traveling home, the secret service uh, uh, detail asked him, um, so what did you think of the sermon? And the president began to say it was this, it was that, it was the other thing, and, and complimenting the preacher. And he said, so it, it was good then. And he said, no. Because the preacher failed 
to require an action by the congregation. He required to get the congregation to do something. And I'm going to ask you to do something this morning because Lord knows I don't want to fail in front of Abraham Lincoln. And I certainly don't want to fail before my Lord and King. And I'm going to ask you this morning, are you fasting God's Word? Are you walking through your life under the auspices of religious obligation and not the direction of God's holy writ? Are you fasting God's Word? Are you moving about the cabin, as they say, with your life riddled and strewn with idols and graven images erected and viewed as acceptable because that's just life because you fasted God's word and you have not like the old song says viewed these things of earth as they grow strangely dim is that you this morning Josiah initiated a revival and a reformation based on God's Word. What is it that we need? What is it that we need? And is it God's Word that we need deeper and deeper in our lives? Is that you? If that's you, there are altars up here. And I want you to sacrifice those things and bring God's Word to the forefront of your life. Freddie, play. If that's you, come to the front. Finding myself if that's you, come to the front. At a loss.